Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 11 of the How's My Hat Path podcast. This week on the show, we have Mr. Travis Fulton. Some of you may recognize Travis from his work on the Golf Channel. He occasionally will take part in the morning drive, and he was heavily part of their team for about four or five years. Uh, Travis is based out of Florida, and he um, keeps himself quite busy with social media and obviously his own personal instruction and everything like that. So we had a really fun conversation. We spoke about his time in the Golf Channel and everything, and uh, you guys are really going to enjoy this one. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of How's My Hand Path. This week on the show, we got uh, maybe one of the biggest names on social media right now, who's pretty much everywhere. Uh, Mr. Travis Fulton, what's going on, buddy? Hey, man, how are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, dude, it was it's my pleasure. Um, you know, I, I see you killing the game. I think you might be the only person on this planet who might be busier than me in the golf industry with how much you're doing right now. <laughs> yeah, it's busy. You know, it's um, the social media aspect with with uh, my my teaching on the lesson tee and all other things. It um, there's there's enough to be had, especially when you add a a family with a wife and a five and four year old. I, uh, every minute is precious for sure. <laughs> what do you think you spend the most time on right now of all the different projects? Is it just trying to boost your social media stuff? You know, I teach, um, you know, I don't teach as much as I used to Shaheen. I'm 20 years now in the business and, um, you know, I grinded for 15, 16 years every day, all day. And, um, I made a decision, um, about five, six years ago that, you know, I wanted to get more into the media side and uh, I did a lot of work for Golf Channel for, for many years. And then that's kind of parlayed into my own social media stuff and own business. So, you know, I wanted to get to where I was teaching three and a half, four days a week and then able to sustain a business in the, in the media front um, for two days a week. And I, I think I've I think I finally got there. So I, I like the balance and um, hope to hope to keep it going. So for those who don't know, then, and, and to be honest, even I don't know the answer to this, but how did you even get started with your instruction? What made you want to get into the golf industry and start teaching? Yeah, you know, I grew up on the West Coast, uh, played for a small school, uh, NAI school called Lewis and Clark State College. And, um, you know, when I got out of college in 1999, uh, I wanted to get in the golf business, uh, but I didn't, I didn't want to be behind the counter. So I, I figured, you know, why not teach? So I, I started um, in a facility at Gateway Golf Center is the name of it. It's right on the Snake River in Clarkston, Washington. This beautiful range, probably the most like spectacular range on this beautiful river. And so I was like, you know, I'm gonna teach, and I was charged like 25 bucks an hour. And I, I realized about four lessons into, it, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, so I said, you know, why not go move uh, somewhere and learn from some people? So I packed it up, moved down to Scottsdale, and uh, started with a group called Resort Golf. And um, started to teach at another driving range down the right on the uh, Scottsdale Road strip. It's called Cracker Jacks. This place is it's this place is quite the trip. Um, and I, I taught there private lessons, did a lot of golf schools, and learned a ton. And um, and really decided that I liked it. So I started to travel with them across the country. And um, they uh, they got the license deal uh, to the PGA Tour here in Florida and asked me if I'd come with them. So I did. Came here in 2001 and um, just been grinding since, man. We uh, built the Tour Academy brand pretty strong there for about eight or nine years um, in Florida and across the country. And, you know, just uh, the more I got into the teaching aspect, the more I learned and 
um, you know, was able to associate myself with, with guys that knew a lot more than me that I learned from. And, you know, just one thing led to the other and married a girl from Atlanta. And here I am 20 years later, still in Northeast Florida. So you never left ever since you came here and started building this whole <laughs> academy. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. Like every time I come here, I was like, you know, I'll get back to the West coast eventually. And, um, and I just never did, you know, it was like, you know, the Mecca of, I think golf is, is kind of Florida. Um, at least in the United States and, you know, Arizona's big, but, you know, Florida's just, there's so many great players here and great knowledge and teachers and things going on. So I was like, you know, I'm in the right spot for me to continue to grow my career. And uh, my wife works for the PGA tour. So it was just a natural fit for us to stay here and start a family. And um, this is probably where we'll be for the rest of our life, or at least till we uh, retire. That's what I was going to say. I would imagine that having a family and having kids growing up there is also playing a role in you not wanting to move anywhere else just because they're getting accustomed to like the area and all that. Yeah. You know, we live in St. John's County, Ponte Vedra Beach, which is a, is the, the top schools district in the state. So it's um, um, with our kids now starting to get a little bit older. We, we feel like we're, um, you know, kind of vested here in the right spot and great spot for them to go to school and, you know, continue to, to grow my business, not only, um, you know, on the lesson T, which I've got two great properties here, but also in social media and, um, you know, continue to do work for the PGA tour, which I do on their sites and then, um, and, and some others. So yeah, this is, uh, this is home, man. I don't, I don't think, um, I don't think we'll be leaving unless we can get a, a summer spot and, you know, be able to go up and jump in the lake once in a while without getting killed. Like we do down here in Florida. <laughs> I, uh, the course that I teach out of whenever I travel to Florida is Jacaranda in the Southern area in, in Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. And, uh, it's funny cause I'm, I'm really good buddies with the director of golf there. His name is, um, is Andrew and he's Andrew Michael. He's like the chillest guy ever. And he always tells me that in the winter time they have like, you know, 260 members or something like that. And in the summer they lose like 60% of them cause it gets so hot and so humid because yeah. they can't handle it. Yeah. You know, what's, what's interesting and that's the case down in Southern Florida. Northeast Florida is like Southern Georgia, you know, like Jacksonville, Ponte Vedra areas. You know, it's right now it's 50 degrees here. You know, the little cold front kind of dropped down. And, um, you know, you'll get seasons here that later on, like we'll get two, three weeks of winter. Uh, it won't snow, but it'll get cold, especially with the Northeast wind. And, you know, you get a little fall, you know, but once it gets hot, it's hot here. It's definitely four months of just pain, heat. Um, but, you know, it, it, un, unlike Fort Lauderdale, you will get some colder weather here in Jackson, which is kind of nice. I mean, I grew up in the snow in the winter, so it's it's kind of nice to, be able to put a jacket on once in a while and and um, you know and feel like you're kind of in the winter at least for a couple of weeks. <laughs> Trust me, if anyone know what the, knows what the winter is yeah. like, uh, I, can, I can I can assure you it gets pretty damn cold out here. So <laughs> I know. I hear you, man. Uh, so I wanted to ask, uh, how did you, so what, where did you learn all this info about the golf swing anyways? Like, did you mentor under someone specific when you came out to Florida, let's say after like your whole Scottsdale uh, story? Yeah. You know, when I got to Florida, um, you know, I got tied into, um, a lot of the golfing machine stuff at an early age, um, was kind of, you know, was really hand fed that with Chuck Evans and Lynn Blake, who were, you know, kind of the two guys that you know, really did all the certification. So I learned a great deal from the geometry side. Um, and, um, you know, I, uh, I traveled a lot with Scott Sackett, who really, you know, taught me a lot as well on the instruction side and, and just the business side. And, um, you know, Todd Soans was part of our group who is a top 50 teacher. I think, you know, just excellent in the world of short game and have learned a lot from him. Um, you know, and, and the list goes on, you know, I mean, it's, uh, 
it's it's a it's a long list with you know the the Mike Benders of the world and the Martin Halls of the world and Martin you know Michael Brady I spent a lot of time with Golf Channel and um you know and 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 just and it continues you know with where we are in today's game with you know the science side and the, all these doctors doing research Sasho and and uh, and others and I know you know your group out there at the, at Course Kings does a lot of great work with Jeff Smith and um you know it just it just continues as you know so it's like you're always learning um, you're always picking up little things here and there from um from everybody and you you kind of formulate it and make it your own but it's influenced by so many different people and as i as i list people i know i'm forgetting on the spot here like five six seven ten others that i've learned from and you know dr greg rose and um and his partner at TPI. And so it's, it's, uh, it's cool, man. It, it never ends. And, um, but I think we're, I think we just continue to evolve in golf instruction and, um, you know, I think we'll just continue on that path. Do you think that, um, what you're teaching now is very different to what you were teaching like 10 years ago? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, you know, I, I, I think about that, you know, a lot, um, in how I teach now versus, um, 10 years ago. I mean, just, I think the way that I would teach spine angle 10 years ago versus the way that, that I teach spine angle now, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a very different concept. The way that I think I teach using the ground is, is different now than it was 10 years ago. I mean, you just go 15 years ago, right. And the way that ball flight laws were taught. Um, yeah. It's so, it's so different in approach. the PGA schools and everything. Yeah, I mean to way to the way that it is now. Um, so it, it's it, as a teacher, if you've been teaching for the last ten to twenty years, and you say you're doing the exact same thing now that you were ten years ago, I think you have to probably look at yourself in the mirror um, <laughs> and see what's changed. It, it, yeah, because I don't know how it. I don't know how it couldn't have changed. And um, and and you know what? It'll probably continue to change some. It'll continue to be refined. Uh, and that's okay. You know, I had this conversation with Dana Dahlquist up at on, on in December at uh, Andrew Rice's coaches camp, and you know, and, and talking about the way that the shaft, you know, shallows out, and the way that, you know, I think I taught it ten years ago versus the way that that I would kind of do it now. Uh, I think ten years ago it was more about, you know, bumping the hip, shifting, and taking on a little more side bend to the right. There was this little more emphasis on pulling down and yeah you could probably get it to come down from the inside but it didn't always mean the shaft was going to lay down and then you know you'd have to get the higher handle at impact so there was different that was a concept of getting someone from the inside and drawing it and now I think um, the way that that is coming across today is very different at least it is um, you know for me and in, in, in teaching you, know, you got to have weight shift but blending in rotation sooner and getting the pelvis in a little better spot where the player doesn't have to take on as much side bend and, and, and the, and the idea of external rotation, the education of the lead hand, and, you know, and the way that the shaft can shallow, but you can rotate and be able to be in a better position through the impact dynamic without so much side bend. So, you know, I think that's just one, that's just one example of, you know, say 10, 12 years ago versus today. And, um, and there's just, then there's just countless little things of, of the way, that one would teach you know for me when we started the tour cab we were very impact centric and then kind of working back which i think was very beneficial for a lot of people um 
but I find myself probably today, you know, working with people on the backswing more and shaping structure, getting them to be in position to, to shallow and rotate better through the impact zone. So there's just so many little examples that I think are a little different today than maybe they were 10 years ago. Yeah, I, I, I've spoken to numerous different coaches who have been teaching for a long time, and they give me honestly the exact same answer where it's like, there was this idea of, you know, shallow the club by any means necessary, which oftentimes came at the expense of the pivot and how the body was turning. Um, mm-hmm. and, and now it's almost like this idea of let me shallow it independently through the arms so that I'm not necessarily sacrificing, you know, the pelvic movement and all of that so that the golfer can continue turning and not rely on so much hand action at the bottom with that high handle where it's like, you know, a golfer comes to you and he's hitting these huge blocks and he's like, well, I'm turning, I'm, I'm shallowing the club. Well, I'm like, yeah, but you're, you know, your body's creating so many different issues that uh, you're going to struggle to do anything but hit those hooks and those blocks and things like that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that's a, you know, that's obviously a big concept, right? And, and something that people need to learn how to do is, is get the club in a better position coming down, learning to hit the inside of the ball for the first time, getting the path going to the right for a right-handed player. I mean, that's still an opportunity um, for so many. So, and, you know, I think it's, you know, when you, when you work with the amateur golfer, right, and you're trying to develop their skills, you're trying to create a program for them to, you know, kind of I always tell them improve the probability of the impact position and let, let this snowball effect be more in their favor rather than having this list of compensations that have to happen at impact, which really, you know, decreases your probability of hitting good shots and your misses get bigger and all of that. So, you know, when you're working with that mid-handicap player and you're trying to put things, you're trying, I always say, give them great info, but put it in the right order so they can develop. And when they leave you, they have the structure um, to really kind of self-discover within that structure and then get this um, progressive effect working for them um, in their favor. But, you know, as you work with better players, as you know, um, you know, they have patterns, they have idiosyncrasies. You have to kind of protect their talent a little bit as well and not not mold them into something that you might think is, you know, technically more functional, but you have to take what they're doing well, be sensitive to that, and layer in things that um, are going to have the same lasting effect. It's honestly, you nailed it on the head there because it's probably the messages I get received the most um, on my social media is like, you know, you have these philosophies that obviously you tend to fall in line with. And me and you are very similar within that of about the shaft and the pelvis and all that. And then you have somebody messaging you and he's like, you know, why do you have a tour player who's doing this, even though you're so against it? It's like, well, because the guy became a pro doing this and you know, he has a certain foundation of movements within his golf swing that are so um, kind of like rooted inside his movement pattern that trying to get rid of it and eliminate it is going to come at too much of a cost of his scoring. And this guy has to score in tournament play that, you know, sometimes you can't get rid of things even though you want to. And I'm sure Jeff Smith and Dana Dahlquist and whoever else is very similar where it's like, you know, you have tour players that come to you and they have these moves that maybe aren't necessarily the best that you don't necessarily like. But, you know, how much of it can you remove? Well, it's a long process that sometimes it takes two months to get rid of a tiny little adjustment, you know, a micro detail of a wrist angle that's not within line of your philosophy or whatever. And, you know, uh, people think that it's as easy as everyone else. Well, you know, the easiest golfers to change are the ones who just started because they have no muscle memory of anything. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. Right? Like, how easy is yeah. it to change a guy who's cutting across the ball who just started playing last week? It's like the guy has no clue what he's doing anyways. So everything is going to feel foreign to him, whether he's swinging from the inside or not. And so he's easier yep. to change or commit to than the guy who's been playing for 25 years. And he's like, man, I've been doing the same move with my shoulder in the downswing for 40 years. How do you want me to change that now in a week? It's like, well, it's not going to happen, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's uh, you know, a good story along those lines is you know, when I was teaching you know, a lot, I, I worked with Fred Funk for many, many years. And you know, when, when the idea of launch bunders first came out, um, yeah, I remember we had TrackMan one day and we were set up and, you know, Fred's probably the straightest driver of the golf ball to ever play. And he, he knew that he, he hit about one and a half degrees down on it consistently. And, um, and as the information was more apparent to him that he realized, okay, if I hit two degrees up, then what would that mean to my distance? Fred was not one of the longest hitters. And I knew that, you know, changing, I knew that changing one's attack angle two or three points is a, is a, is a pretty big change, you know, especially for a player who hits it as straight as he does. For sure. Because um, you can only go backwards. You can only go backwards accuracy-wise, you know, when you're dealing with a player like that. So, I mean, when he's, when he's hitting know, 80% I, of fairways, it's easy to go the other way yeah. real quick. <laughs> so I kind of, you know, so as this conversation developed, I, you know, I realized that this is probably not for him. I knew Fred very well. I knew how he learned things. I knew what he could and couldn't do. And this was, you know, probably a year and a half into our relationship. And I realized that, you know, Fred is going to be living around one degree down probably for the rest of his career. And, but nonetheless, you know, in practice sessions, we would partake in the things that would need to happen because he wanted to know what would need to happen to get that attack angle moving more up. And, and um, it didn't take long for him to realize that, that he couldn't play tournament golf doing those things. Right. I mean, he just, it just wasn't him. He couldn't trust it. And you know, that quickly diffused, thank God. Right. Because can you imagine taking the straightest driver of all time and all of a sudden he can't hit a fairway. <laughs> so I mean, it, there's, there, there's no yeah. use in gaining 20 yards off the tee if you're going to be missing no. twice as many fairways. Yeah. So it just, it, it just, you know, it's just a good example, right. Where, you know, you get into the, you, you get into the trenches with someone who does it for a living. And you realize that, look, this is not, you're not trying to make them perfect. You, you can't always optimize numbers. There has to be a play mode. And for Fred, it was one degree down. Um, you know, there were some other things that, that, that we did that he was able to do um, that made him a better striker and more consistent. But moving the attack angle to two to three, two degrees up was not one of them because he just simply couldn't take it in tournament play. Yeah, so it's almost like at that point, you kind of have to pick and choose as a coach obviously as a professional like we are, where it's like, you know, there's maybe five or six things that you see within the player that you would like to change, but then you have to prioritize, well, which ones are, is, is he going to be able to do when it matters, right? When his nerves yeah. are getting a little tense and it, he has to hit an important tee shot, well, is he able to do it? Well, if the answer is no, and it's a year he's trying to accomplish it, at a certain point you have to find an alternative, don't you? Yeah, yeah I think you do. And, and I think it's important to understand that you're going to make mistakes. I mean, you know, as, as good as a coach as anybody is, you know, especially when you're working out with someone at that level, right? That's playing golf every day. That's competing every week or every other week. Um, you, you know, you set out a plan and I think within that plan, there's going to be mistakes. I mean, you, you're going to suggest something that you think should happen. And as it happens, it may not, 
be for the betterment of the player as you get into the plant, right? Like they're just not able to do that as the example that I just shared. But I think that's where having some runway with the student and being able to work through some of that, where you kind of get on that common ground and, and all of a sudden you find the things that, that the player can do, that the player can develop to move the needle, to become a better player. Um, I think that's where, you know, I think that's where you kind of earn your buck. But I, I, I do think that you're going to make mistakes as a coach. Um, and um, you have to have a relationship with a player that, you know, has some runway where you can work through those and really come out on the other end where you feel like you've done some good work. So this falls right in line with what we kind of discussed even on your own personal podcast about the idea of Jason Day and his golf swing, right? Like yeah. Jason Day obviously has certain patterns within his swing that I'm not necessarily a fan of. I'm sure you're not either, and a lot of coaches aren't. But then you kind of have to weigh the pros and cons of saying like, well, is he going to be able to make those changes, number one? Number two, is he going to be able to make those changes and even score half decent because they're going to feel very foreign to him for a long time because his swing is so kind of ingrained after years and years of hitting balls the same way. And then you have to say, well, like, does his swing coach even know about this information and has he tried to apply it and Jason just couldn't do it, right? So mm -hmm. at what point does it become difficult of saying, like, look, you know, you're, gonna, you're sacrificing your health right now because of certain issues that are in your swing, but obviously they're making you score better. So which one do you prioritize at that point? So, like, if, if you were his coach, for example, and not to put you on the spot about it or anything, but, like, mm -hmm. what, what would have been your thoughts about that? Well, I think, you, I think you've put in the right priority for sure. Um, you know, in the way that you would start to go down that checklist. I think for Jason, um, you know, what's causing the back injury, right? I mean, I, I think it is probably more than just the golf swing in itself. I mean, people have chronic back issues and problems, but I do think it's been recognized that the way he is swinging the club is not um, helping that matter by any stretch. So um, I think for Jason, you have to look at, okay, the way that I'm currently doing it um, is making me go down um, every so often, right? You know, I'm missing President's Cups. I'm missing, um, you know, big tournaments for the prime of my career to be out there playing golf. So if I continue to go down this path, it's probably going to continue to happen more often because that's what's been happening up to this point. Um, so can I do some things where I can start eliminating um, some of the, the stress off of my back? And I think we would both agree there is you know, starting in the backswing, which I think would be a big change for him. But as you start evaluating the risk in that and what it would mean to them, I mean, incrementally starting to lose some flexion in the right leg, I think something is something that he should consider. Now, I, I, I just, you know, as I, I read some of the changes that he's making with his coach, you know, and turning the right hip more and, and not getting him to sway to the outside, you know, perhaps there is going to be some of that direction. But I think that's something that he needs to look at. Um, and what that means to the amount of side bend that he's taking on at impact doesn't have to happen, you know, where you're taking the whole bottle. But I do think um, as much as many issues that he's having with his back, I would have to think the way that he's swinging the club is not helping that. So moving the needle where he can incrementally make those changes, it just seems logical at this point. I was having this conversation recently with a tour player and I, I won't name who it was, but you know, me and him were talking and he has very similar tendencies to what Jason has without the back issues where it's like, you know, a lot of flex on both knees in the backswing, hands get very upright. And then he obviously from there, he has to compensate and he slides and tilts away from the target and whatnot. And this is a pattern that we see with a lot of good players. I'm sure you've seen it a lot yep. as well. And um, 
the player was telling me like, well, I can't necessarily get into the backswing you want because it doesn't make, it doesn't work, right? Like if the player gets the right leg to extend maybe a little more and lose that flex and they get deeper into the hip, well, sure, the hands might be in theoretically a better spot in the backswing, but then all of a sudden they start snap hooking everything because they're still sliding and tilting on the way down, you know? And then he says, yeah. well, how do, I, how do I play golf that way? And I'm like, well, you can't look at it in that sense because we're not expecting you to get from zero to 100. We're talking about like you incrementally improve the way in which you're loading in the backswing, even if it's by 5%. And then once you get into that 5%, then we incrementally improve the downswing by 5%. And then you go that way. Because if you yeah. do too much too soon, then it becomes a nightmare of like, well, I did the backswing you want, but I'm still not turning better because they maybe haven't adapted to the changes. And then they're no longer functional with their golf swing, right? And then yeah. they're like, well, sure, my back might feel maybe marginally better, but now I can't find a fairway to save my life. Why is this <laughs> the best change for me, you know? Yeah. You know, there's a, and that's the, that's the, in the trenches when you get in with a student, right? Where you might make that 5% and then everything just hits the fan, right? I mean, you just literally, the, the player gets emotional about it and, you might have to take a step back and kind of say, okay, let's, let's go 2%, you know? And, and then as you kind of re, as you kind of reorganize a little bit, then you might, you know, take a round two at it and you might go about it a little bit, a little bit differently. You know, it's interesting in the way that students perceive the information. Uh, one of the things that I spent a lot of time on is really, as I've gotten older with teaching is, is not just tell them, the way that that I want them to do it in my terminology or in the way that is comfortable and makes sense to me, but rather try to create that environment where you can kind of get them to self-discover it and get them to tell you what it is and what it means to them. And then from there, really kind of, you know, going with that messaging so they own it more. And, um, you know, so it's, it's funny. You, you might go down that path once and you get a lot of pushback. But then as you reposition it a second time, you know, now all of a sudden you're getting a little bit more traction. So it's, uh, it's the trial and errors of, of teaching. There's no perfect smooth path for anybody. It, I mean, the reality is, is you don't know when you start making changes. You don't know what is going to happen. Some are going to take it, and it's like, it's great. And there's no bumps. But the reality is most of the time there is. Emotional kickback starts to take form, especially when these guys are doing it for a living. And you have to kind of pull the reins back a little bit and then let it out a little bit and pull the reins back a little bit and then let it out a little bit. And it's an incremental thing. And hopefully you have a relationship where you allow that to mature over a period of time. I'll tell you what, the first thing you said in that whole answer was something that resonated with me like five years ago or even 10 years ago. My brother is one of the best debaters I've ever seen when it comes to trying to convince <laughs> people to do things. And the number one thing he taught me years ago, I'm not even joking, is something you just said, which is that the best way to convince someone to be able to do something is never to tell them they're wrong, but try to lead them to the answer of why that might be right, right? This idea yeah. of, like, you know, kind of self-discovery, like you mentioned, like, if I force a guy into a move that's uncomfortable to him, he's going to be like, well, fuck you, I can't do it, right? Sorry yeah. for swearing, but you get the idea, right? Yeah, yeah. And, but if you tell a guy why maybe other things are wrong and you lead him down the path to where maybe he can figure out why that might be right, he's going to be way more committed to that type of adjustment. And it's no different in politics or debating or anything of any nature, right? And yep. so you kind of nailed it there where it's like there's a huge commitment change from a player, from one player to another, when they're able to figure out that that's the right answer versus you telling them that that's the right answer. 
And I'm sure it's the same with like, you know, parenting and whatever. Yeah. No, I think it's, I think it's human nature. And I think, um, you know, it's interesting. Like I, you know, I played a lot of the sports growing up and, and I just, I feel like, and I mean this all in the best sense. I feel like when, you know, like in basketball and football and in baseball, in the team sport environment, you're more willing to be coached up, you know, coach me up and coach me up for the betterment of the team. I think in these independent sports, I don't think it's as much the case. I think they, they think they, they know they want to be coached up and they know they want to get better. But I think the application, the way that you go about that in a one-on-one setting versus as a team is very, very different, especially at the pro level. Yeah, I think the independence of the sport for sure makes an influence on, on like just your mentality towards it, right? Because yeah. you're relying on yourself. It's easy to say it's a team game. You know, maybe I should do this differently because it improves the dynamic of all of us working together as opposed to saying like, you know, I'm by myself. If I don't do this better, who's going to do it, right? Yeah. yeah. So I, yeah, I totally that's, get where that's exactly right. Yeah, I yep. totally get where you're coming from. All right, dude. So on a different note then, um, you know, I kind of wanted to get into you working with the Golf Channel. I know we're kind of going off topic yeah. a little bit, but um, how, did, how did you even get offered that job? Did you apply for it? Did someone contact you specifically for it? Was it because of the move to Florida that you got that job? I would assume so. Well, you know, it's funny. It was, um, it was let's see, yeah, well, I think six years ago, and that's when I, you know, made the decision that I, I really wanted to get more into the media side. I've always, I've always kind of taken a little different path. You know, Shaheen, I really never wanted to be on tour traveling with players. Um, and, you know, I, I like the idea of working with some top players and this and that. And I still have some, you know, some pros and highly talented players. But, you know, I kind of made it known that like, I'm not going to be traveling the tour with these guys. It just wasn't for me. I, I really wanted to get more into the TV side. I felt like that's kind of was fit more of my skill set and, and spread the message, you know, that way. And there was a new show six years ago. It was called On the Range. And um, it was a show where basically two guys were standing around. And they were just breaking down swings. And it was a 30-minute show. And they were looking for um, another person. And basically each, uh, each, as I understand, each cast member um, at, the, at the Golf Channel could, you know, kind of recommend someone to come in for an audition. And Billy Kratzer is someone that I've known for a long time and have learned a lot from. Um, and he basically referred me, which allowed me to come down for an audition. So I went down and auditioned and uh, I got the job, which was crazy. So, uh, so I, I went on to the show with Billy Harmon, um, Butch's brother. And Billy and I um, basically were the co-hosts of this show every Wednesday night for like a year and a half. And, um, and basically, you know, that was the beginning of what you see now, like on Golf Central and Morning Drive, where, you know, they'll, they'll pan into the range and, you know, you have guys talking over it, right? You know, here's, you know, here's so-and-so, there's this coach, here's what they're working on, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, they, what they did is they took that show and they just dissolved it into all their other programs. And uh, the producer of Morning Drive asked me if I would come over there. I did. And um, it was really kind of the beginning of what I was envisioning, Shaheen, which is really a golf coach at the desk talking all things golf. And I pounded the pavement for many years at the Golf Channel. And I said, you know, golf instruction is such a big part of the game. And everybody has an opinion on it. And most of 
the opinions and most of the breakdowns are coming from former players and that's fine. And that's one perspective, but I think the heavy lifting, you know, it would, it, it might need to come from say another coach. Maybe they could provide a little different perspective, a little different insight to what players are working on specifically with other coaches. And furthermore, I felt like, you know, you have sports writers and analysts and, and players, former players at the desks. I think you need, to have a coach that can talk all things golf, you know, have an opinion, be conversational, do interviews. But that's where it all kind of started. And, and I, I basically fulfilled that seat for many, many years at golf channel on morning drive. And it was honestly some of the best years um, of my career and uh, doing live television will teach you a lot in a hurry. And um, I just loved it. It was the, the, the hours were tough, you know, we'd get there early and, uh, 3:45 in the morning and leave at noon. But I got to tell you, it, wouldn't, it was it was awesome. Great cast, great people, and um, you know a lot of great players roaming through there. And um, it just kind of really set the foundation for me now, which is my own platforms, my own business, and what I'm doing, you know, on Instagram and other platforms. Well, I would imagine that putting you on the spot like that made you way more comfortable in front of the camera than maybe you otherwise would have been. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You know, it it. Uh, you know, it teaches you a few things. One is it, it, it teaches you how to listen, you know, first and foremost. Um, you know, when you're, when you're doing live television, you have a lot of people talking. Maybe you have a producer in your ear. Um, you have people that you're sitting with and, and, you know, basically having a conversation with as part of the show. Um, and then, you know, it's kind of, then you have like other people that are around and just kind of filming you and directing traffic on which camera to look at. So you have a lot of things going on. So I have always said that it, it, it taught me how to listen and it really taught me how to concentrate and, and really focus in on the task at hand and really be in the moment, which was an incredible, incredible rush, you know, of, of doing live TV. Um, but then also really kind of formulate your other skills, which is, you know, not just talk golf instruction, but, but be conversational, learn how to interview people, um, move segments along, get in and out of segments. Um, there's a lot to it. And I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have given up those four years for nothing. So, in, um, let's say outside of like, obviously the experience you gained through that and how it improved your other projects that you're doing now. Uh, have you gotten more busy because of the golf channel? Do people recognize you more? So let's say like at a golf course, if you're, if you're showing up, do people come up to you now? <laughs> you know, not as much anymore because it's been, you know, I'm kind of two years removed now when I was, I would, yeah, I definitely get more of that. Um, cause I was on pretty consistently. So, um, but yeah, still a little bit to this day now, you know, they, they kind of, you know, they, they, they recognize me more for who I am in my own sites rather than someone who was, you know, on morning drive or segments on golf central and things like that. So, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, my, my platforms have gotten big enough now where it's cool to, it's cool for people that come up and say, man, I'm a follower, you know, and I'm learning a lot. You know, I love show us your swing or, you know, I love the, you know, the 10, 15 tea time on Tuesdays, you know, like, so we've got a lot of stuff going on and, you know, when people come up and reference those things, it, it, it means a lot. It feels good. So let's, let's talk about that social media side then, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, very different than the golf channel. You know, I'm a big part of it too. So I, I understand exactly what you're going through in terms of, you know, trying to manage several projects at the same time. Um, yeah. Let's talk, let's talk about Skillist. Obviously Skillist and social media. I actually want to get into social media as a whole. 
I think that you're one of the coaches, in, in my honest opinion, who does the best job of uh, taking a very like kind of comedic approach with your personality while simultaneously making it very informative. Now, I think a lot of people uh, get caught a little too serious on social media. I would probably fall into that category as well. I tend to get caught into traps where it's like I'm a little serious in how I talk and approach things. Whereas yeah. you're obviously making light of a lot of things while simultaneously, you know, knowing as much as you know, you, you, you say some very informative things that can make players better. So uh, I wanted to know just how you got into the whole social media world. What made you start your Instagram page for starters? And uh, how, did you, how did you get involved with Baden and Skillist? For those who don't know, by the way, Baden is the guy who uh, started the Skillist platform. Baden is uh, an Australian who's extremely intelligent and uh, works really hard behind the scenes for all of us to be able to use his platform. So uh, just yeah. a little, little shout out there for him. But I want to hear your opinion on this. Yeah, for sure. Baden's great. Skills is a terrific app. Um, I use it. I know you use it. it. It's allowed me to put my programs on there and for people to purchase straight from the app, which has been a, um, a wonderful uh, addition uh, to my platform. But, uh, you know, social media, I think, you know, once I left Austin, it was time to kind of just do it myself. You know, it was, you know, I, I probably in hindsight, you know, I did everything, you know, as a director of instruction for the PGA Tour Academy for many years. Um, you know, we built the PGA Tour brand, PGA Tour Academy brand. And then once the Golf Channel, obviously it's all about Golf Channel. You know, although it's doing great things for your, your own name, you're still, you know, it, it's a different animal, right? You're working for them. Um, and it was time for me to kind of do it for the Travis Fulton Golf brand. So that's when I started it. Um, I wanted the main platform to be Instagram, which is where we've really put all the investment into. And and it's and it's work, you know. I mean, it's um, had a vision for, you know, what we – what we wanted it to be. I have a guy that works for me, does a terrific job on the back end. Um, we do all of our creative together and then we go out and execute it. You know, he edits it and puts it out there. And, you know, I think to go back to your question, you know, about the personality side, I think, um, you know, it's something for me that I really try to stay focused on who my audience is. I think a lot of teachers when they're speaking, their audiences, other teachers. And I think, and that's fine, you know, and I think that's, that that's, that's a very limited audience. And I think the conversation and the way that they position it, the lexicon that they use is, is towards other teachers. Now they might say that it is towards amateurs, but amateurs are going to, are going to shy away from that. At least 95% of them. Now the serious golfers, not, I get that. But, you know, I think oftentimes teachers are talking to other teachers in, in social media for me, I'm not talking to other teachers. I'm talking to, I call it the 85% Shaheen, which is, you know, we know that 15% um, fifteen percent take lessons, 15% engage in a one-on-one -on -one lesson or online lesson, a golf school. 85% don't, but we know that instruction is so powerful and so popular that, you know, you can have a business around it. Um, in other ways, just ask Golf Digest, ask Golf Magazine. Um, you know, they were able to speak to the 85%. So for me, I'm talking to the 85%. I want them to come to my platform, know that they're my audience, and I'm going to speak to them in, with the franchises that I've put together in a way with my personality that it comes out where they feel like, wow, this is cool. You know, I'm, I'm learning, and it's entertaining. He's bringing in other people. You know, it's more than just him kind of, you know, pounding the C-O-M into my head. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, obviously, me and you have been, you know, social media friends for a long time. But 
you know, for the amount of coaches that both you and I follow, I'm telling you, you're the guy who stands out the most often by far. And not necessarily in, well, terms, in, terms, in terms of the swing theories, because a lot of us are in line with similar stuff. But in terms of how you approach it and how you engage your audience, I think you do a phenomenal job. Honestly, I want to... No, I appreciate it. I want to compliment no, I appreciate that. that. Because, um, yeah, I mean, look, you make it really fun. You make it really, you know, very enthusiastic. It's a very positive energy. And, you know, I mean, just based on like the, the Golf Digest stuff that I saw recently, like you're able to make fun of yourself in a way where, you know, you don't mind shanking a few balls or topping a few balls for the sake of, <laughs> you know, getting your point across with some people. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, that's been a fun series. You know, it's called the Oh Shit series with uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, it's kind of like those moments where you where you walk up to a you know you walk up to your ball and it's that scenario where you say to yourself in your head Oh shit, and then it you know kind of gets into this um, <laughs> you know fifty second idea of what what needs to happen. But you know, yeah, I you know I've always you know I'm comfortable with with what I'm doing. I, I I feel like I got a pretty good handle on, you know, what I'm teaching, but you know, I, I think there's a lot more to learn. Um, I think it'll continue to make sense. I think you have to be humble in your approach. And, uh, but at the same time, you know, what I always tell people and I'm going up to the PGA section in New Orleans, in New Orleans to talk is like, you gotta know your audience. Like, what are you trying to do? You know, who are you speaking to? And as cliche as that sounds, it's really important to whittle that down because everything you do from there um, answers all questions. I agree. I think that a lot of people tend to uh, change up their vocabulary too often, even on social media, honestly. I'm obviously mm -hmm. someone who speaks very scientifically on social media, but in my opinion, I think something that I, I put a lot of emphasis on is trying to be as consistent as possible with the terms I use so that if, you know, a guy comes and sees me, you know, if he says, let's say, flexion in one's video and bowing in the other, he's like, well, if I don't understand the golf thing, I don't know, is he talking about the same thing or two different things here? Because those are two different words, right? And so right. as, as confusing as it can sound to certain players, obviously I tend to cater more towards the better player. I think that's just the reality of my students yeah, tend to for be sure. more, more professionals. But um, I think there's a, there's a really big aspect of being more consistent with your audience and, and using the same terminology day in, day out. I, yes. I think, that, I think the vocabulary that you use is, speaks to the kind of clientele, right, that, that you – that's going to apply to and that, that you, that you want to work with. And yeah, I think your expertise um, and the way that you communicate, which is, you know, very thoroughly, but understandable, right? Like, I don't think you are talking over your audience's head. And I think that the pro can really, your professionals can really, you know, really benefit from that. And also, um, you know, the serious amateur player as well. So, I think the vocabulary falls right in line with the kind of audience that you're going after. For sure. So let's talk about um, some skill stuff then. Obviously you released a couple of series. You mentioned it earlier. Um, Operation baby draw. Maybe the yep. videos I've seen the most of on the internet from you uh, getting the golfer to stop slicing the ball. Talk a little bit about that for yeah. maybe you haven't seen it yet. You know, it's funny long, about three years ago, this, player um, that I was working with just wanted a draw right I mean just just this nice little you know three yard draw two yard draw whatever and we just worked hard on all of the components that it would take to do that and at one point he looked at me and he said God, I feel like I'm being operated on 
Uh, he goes, this is like Operation Baby Drop. And I said, what did you say? And he goes, what? I go, what did you just say? And he goes, this feels like Operation Baby Drop. And I was like, hold on a second. I'm going to write that down. Okay, so I have, to, I, have to cut you off. I have to cut you off for a second because I have to mention yeah. the whole story of, for those who don't know, the whole story of how our podcast name came about was because I was okay. literally on the course with one of my students who was working on getting his arms deeper so that he doesn't cut across the ball so much. And he ended up hitting a shot that was not the best shot and it kind of like tailed offline. And then he looked at me and I'm like, did you, miss, did you catch that one off the heel a little bit? And he's like, yeah, but how was my hand path? And that made me laugh so much that I'm like, God, I got to write this down because that, that to me was hilarious. Yep. Like sometimes the students yep. think that to them might just seem like a generic question, but to you is so funny based on what you know, you know, about your own little story. So it's, it's kind of ironic oh, that you, you mentioned that came out as your title. That's literally how we created our podcast name. Yep. Yeah. I have to give him credit. Um, Michael Baldick was his name and he, he uh, was the man that, said it first and I stole it, told him I was going to steal it and made it my first skills program, 10 videos, kind of a in order process where the consumer, you know, just does it on their own. And uh, we just start walking through things, you know, talking about the setup and, and then getting the club face in a better position um, at the top and how to do that, uh, getting the club staff and the, the body in a reasonably good position. And then, you know, coming down, how to, the shaft shallow how to get the path from the inside a little bit and, you know it's probably it's, it's probably a, you know a touch exaggerated you know to get the path going right a bit but you know it works i mean i, I it's been a it's been a, a very good program for me and um it's funny now how people interact with me on instagram because they they just say obd you know you know everything's everything's obd operation baby draw and um <laughs> So it's, it's, it's worked out um, and, and people like it. I think it's a, I think it's a piece of the future, you know, where, you know, people, they don't, they don't want to buy the whole album. You know, they, they, they just want to buy a song, you know, they just want to want to get a little more information other than a YouTube video. They want to have a little more organized. And I think this, this lesson plan operation, baby draw kind of gives them all of those that it applies to. How many uh, different series do you have? Because I know you have also some total driving work, right? Yeah, total driving was the second one I did, which was really good. Operation Baby Drive, total driving was the big ones, and then I I kind of put a little mini series home edition, which is just something like to do at home in the winter time that um, is kind of a scaled down, you know, some some movements to do um, at home, which is done pretty good as well. But the two big programs, uh, which we'll build on the spring, Operation Baby Draw and Total Driving. Nice dude. So, um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Here, here's, here's a lot. Here's a couple last questions. Cause I know that you're a busy okay, guy yeah. and it's PGA week. So I'm sure you got a bunch of meetings and stuff going yeah. on, but no, no um, at all. I wanted to ask, okay. So this is one for the listeners. I think what, what are some signs that you would notice when you're getting a new student that they're nervous when they're on the lesson tee? Is there something they do that typically will stand out where you're like, you can tell the guy's uncomfortable or the woman, whoever's taking the lesson and you want to make them more comfortable. You know, I mean, you can, I, I think you can see it, you know, some people are just, I think, kind of nervous in, in, in general, probably in the way they move fast. So you can't always tell if they're moving fast because they're just kind of, you know, they might be just moving fast, but, you know, I try to get them to talk a little bit and I think, you know, as we're talking um, in the beginning of the lesson, you can kind of hear through their voice um, if there's some anxiety going on there um, for sure. 
And I always, you know, I, I, I try to, you know, buffer it right out of the gate and, you know, basically say, Hey, look, you know, you're here for the same reasons. And that is, you know, you, you want to get better and I'm here to help you. And, and you know, what's going to happen over the next hour or two, well, what's going to happen is you're going to hit some really bad shots and you're going to hit some good shots. And, and that's probably not going to change. And you know what? And either way, we're going to, I'm going to give you some great info. We're going to put it in the right order. We're going to walk out of here happy and excited and feel good about what's going on. So if you hit a good or bad, I don't care. I'm going to capture a few here on video, get some, get some numbers and, and uh, watch some ball flight and off we go, you know? <laughs> so I think, um, I'll tell you what, one of the things that I say, I think I catch myself saying the most often is at the end of the day, if the player was hitting the ball well, they wouldn't come see you, especially if it's the first time, right? Yeah. Nobody, the reality is, unfortunately, no one takes a lesson when they're hitting it well outside of, let's say, professionals, right? And so if the recreational golfer is taking a lesson with you, it's because obviously they know they need to improve because there's going to be some inconsistencies where they're not striking it great. And so, yeah, you hit a shitty shot in front of me. So what? It's not as if you weren't doing that when I wasn't here. So there's nothing to be com- uncomfortable about, right? Right. No, I, I totally agree. Yeah, I totally agree. And sometimes you just have to kind of, you know, just reestablish that, right? And and I think as you say that, you reestablish that, and you just take, you just knock knock it all down, knock all the expectations down. Um, you know, it's uh, it, it it goes a long way. I mean, you can see it. In, in their behavior and as you get into the lessons you know sometimes i'll even walk away if i feel like they're you know i'll even walk away and say you know what i'm gonna get some boy why don't you hit a few shots and i'll be right back you know and just kind of let them get comfortable in the in the environment and then come back you know two three minutes later and you know that, that's so funny i have i have an espresso machine in my academy here in montreal and i do that all the time <laughs> i literally tell them like keep warming up and keep hitting a few balls i'm gonna go make an espresso and really it's just because i know that as soon as i walk out of that room they're going to feel this sense of comfort of like, damn, no one's watching me now. I can get into my rhythm again. And then once they yeah. get into that rhythm, then I come back and it's like, okay, now we can start working on their actual swing and talking about stuff. Are you sure we're not related? You might be like my younger brothers. <laughs> All right, buddy. One last question for you and then I'm going to let you go uh, do your thing. Just uh, one little piece of advice for uh, the young teacher who's coming up. What do you think the, the young teacher can do? Because obviously there's a lot of access to information now. What's the best option for them? Well, I think, um, I think you have to continue to learn, you know, you have to continue to learn off the lesson tee. And I think when you look at the serious golf instructor in social media, a lot of the teachers that we associate with, you know, they're kind of doing that, right? They're, they're, they're learning the science that is readily available for them right now. And I think that's important. But I think as important is you have to learn on the lesson tee and you have to continue to work at your craft and the art of teaching, your messaging, the way you're creating the environment for people to work in. You can you can know all all you need to know, but if you can't get out there and relate to people and connect to people, then the impact that you're going to have is, is going to be limited. Um, your lesson book is going to be limited. So you have to not only work on and learn what's happening off the tee, what's readily available for you, but you've got to pay attention to what's happening on the lesson tee and, and really work on your craft, the art of teaching, your messaging, the way you're presenting yourself, the self-awareness that you have, because maybe that might be the most important thing in the longevity of your career. I love it, dude. I, I tell people all the time, I think the information you know is such a small fraction when you look at the bigger picture of how to 
get your players to do things, right? Like you right. said it yourself, just uh, getting them to understand things, understanding maybe the, the level of vocabulary you need to speak with the player or how to relate to them on a personal level to make them more comfortable or whatever. Like there's so much more that goes into teaching than just having the science down that uh, experience is huge. So I, um, I, I agree with you fully on that one. Yeah. You bet, buddy. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's good advice. I think our industry is a good spot. There's a lot of um, really passionate teachers, you know, coming about. And I, and I just think that, you know, you have to, you have to have that balance, right. Of, of what's happening off the team, what you know, and the way that you're conveying that message on the team, um, because you have to make it inviting. People have to come in. They're, they're playing golf for different reasons. The majority of people don't play professional golf. So you have to create that environment that they want to be around. And, um, and if it's a good one and they're getting better then well, they're going to stick with the game. I love it, dude. I uh, sincerely appreciate you being on. I know how busy yes, you are because me and you share very similar amounts of projects. So when, yes. when you're taking the time to, to work with me, it, it, it makes me happy because I know how busy you are. So thanks for coming hey, well, on. You, know, um, you got to get, me, you gotta get me on your podcast soon now. I will. I will. And real quick, kudos to you. I appreciate you coming on the Monday Scorecard. And we're running um, our conversation that we had about Jason Day this week. He's in the field, Farmers Insurance Open. So uh, I appreciate you coming on and, um, and always for text messaging. You're doing a great job. The best is yet to come for you. And keep going, man. Thanks, buddy. Take care, man. Okay, yep, do that. So I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation. It was fun. He had a lot of great things to say. Plenty of insight there. Um, as always, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Make sure to check us out on social media at Shkeen Golf, S-H-K-E-E-N Golf. That is my own personal handle on all social media platforms, whether that be uh, Twitter or Instagram. Um, you can also follow our academy account, Nakjavani Golf. So that's just my last name in golf. Um, and stay tuned. We have some really fun coaches coming up, lined up uh, that you guys are going to like.